Hello and welcome to NewsHour. Live from the BBC World Service in London, I'm Tim Franks. Today, as the United States says that the North Korean leader is begging for war, we'll hear from the UN Security Council where they are still trying to find a diplomatic solution to the crisis. And from Beijing where the message appears to be, don't give up on talks just yet. Also on the programme, the United Nations says that almost 90,000 Rohingya Muslims have fled Myanmar in the past 10 days. We'll hear from some of them. It's taken us seven days of walking through the mountains to get here. My brother was killed. They shot him in the chest. I couldn't even dig him a proper grave. And the ultra-sensitive camera that could transform medical procedures will speak to the lead researcher on that project. First, though, it's a middling-sized country with a tiny economy and almost no allies. And yet it is a country whose actions and ambitions are pretty much day in, day out, obsessing and infuriating the major players around the world. North Korea was the subject of another emergency meeting of the UN Security Council today. The big powers, and in particular the US, Russia and China, they may agree on relatively few of the more contentious issues these days. But on North Korea, there appears to be universal condemnation of the country's weapons tests and their increased pace and power. Still, though, differences remain over what can be done and over what North Korea's strategy seems to be. We'll try to explore those questions in the course of the programme. First, let's hear from the Security Council itself. The US Ambassador Nikki Haley winded up her rhetoric further than ever. The time has come to exhaust all diplomatic means to end this crisis. And that means quickly enacting the strongest possible measures here in the UN Security Council. Only the strongest sanctions will enable us to resolve this problem through diplomacy. We have kicked the can down the road long enough. There is no more road left. This crisis goes well beyond the UN. The United States will look at every country that does business with North Korea as a country that is giving aid to their reckless and dangerous nuclear intentions. And what we do on North Korea will have a real impact on how other outlaw nations who seek nuclear weapons choose to conduct themselves in the future. The stakes could not be higher. The urgency is now. 24 years of half measures and failed talks is enough. China's envoy to the United Nations, Liu Jiayi, reiterated a call for all sides to return to negotiations, saying that Beijing wanted to promote peace on the Korean peninsula. The situation on the peninsula is deteriorating constantly as we speak, falling into a vicious circle. The peninsula issue must be resolved peacefully. China will never allow chaos and war on the peninsula. The parties concerned must strengthen their sense of urgency, take due responsibilities, play their due roles, take practical measures make joint efforts to together to ease the situation, restart the dialogue and talks, and prevent further deterioration of the situation on the peninsula. A rather more emollient tone being struck by the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations, Liu Jie. The BBC's Richard Lister has been uh, following developments out of Washington, D.C. Uh, does the United Nations Security Council appear to be unified about the issue of sanctions? 
they're clearly unified when it comes to the concern about the nuclear test that North Korea carried out. And of course, it's sixth test and, and the biggest test. And it shows that uh, North Korea is making considerable progress towards expanding and refining its nuclear arsenal. So yes, nobody thinks that's a good idea. But when it comes to how you actually uh, combat that program, then of course, there is deep division. I mean, we heard the Chinese envoy saying that uh, in concert with the Russians, they are proposing this twin track strategy whereby uh, the US and South Korea would suspend their joint military exercises in return for North Korean freeze of its nuclear and missile development programs. And of course, Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the UN, described that as insulting, uh, that uh, there was no way that the United States, when confronted with ICBMs pointed at it by a rogue nation, uh, would lower its defences. So that seems to be a non-starter. The US, as you say, wants much tougher sanctions. China has historically been opposed to that because it does not want anything that is going to economically destabilise North Korea to the point that it gives China a crisis on its border. So presumably over the next few days there will be, uh, as they say, intensive diplomacy as they try and work out some language for this resolution which everybody can sign up to. They will, because I think Nikki Haley has clearly set the bar very high. I mean, she went through the history of UN involvement with North Korea and the sanctions that have been put in place and then broken by the North Koreans. And so clearly for the United States, only some extremely tough measures are going to do. But at the same time, as I was saying... China and to some extent Russia both don't, both agree that that is not the right approach, that that does not achieve anything. It certainly does nothing to get the North Koreans to the negotiating table. And I think given the track record of sanctions over the past couple of decades, you'd have to say, yeah, the North Koreans have not been encouraged uh, to back away from nuclear weapons and, and go to the negotiating table. So, yes, we're going to see some competing uh, resolutions circulating at the UN this week. The United States wants a vote on Monday. It seems unlikely that they are going to get the kind of tough sanctions that they want. Richard Lister indicating that there are differences of opinion and of emphasis across the Security Council. So how can new proposals be agreed? My colleague Rita Lashar spoke to the British ambassador to the United Nations, Matthew Rycroft, and asked him first about the role that China and Russia should play in the Security Council's efforts to find a solution to the crisis. It's certainly true that Russia and China have enabled the Security Council to be united on North Korea so far. There have been a whole series of Security Council resolutions that over time have gradually ramped up the pressure on the North Korean regime. And what we want to do is to make sure that that consensus holds and that they first of all, implement the existing resolutions properly, and secondly, come with us in imposing further significant tightening of the sanctions in response to this latest nuclear test, which is really outrageous and, and illegal. But if you want to keep Russia, and in particularly China, on board, isn't there a need also to respect perhaps some of their proposals and some of their approaches to North Korea? So, for instance, is it helpful for the US ambassador to the UN to reject as insulting a Chinese proposal for a freeze on North Korea's nuclear missile program in exchange for a suspension of, of US-South Korean annual military drills? Well, we agree with China on some aspects of dealing with North Korea, but we totally disagree on this freeze-for-freeze freeze proposal, which Nikki Haley called insulting. We, like the United States, think that it's not right to compare, on the one hand, North Korea's completely illegal, outrageous, reckless and dangerous behaviour, and on the other, uh, the US and South Korea and Japan working legally and in uh, pursuit of self-defence. Do you think that Beijing could do more in this particular scenario that's playing out now? 
Yes, I think it could do more, both on implementing existing sanctions and on coming along quickly with a new resolution. And I very much hope that, that they will do that in the spirit of keeping the whole of the Security Council united. What further pressure do you think can be applied on China? Well, the US talk about applying trade pressure bilaterally between the US and China. I think what we talk about is, uh, is working very closely with them, you know, particularly behind the scenes in the Security Council in Beijing and London to that end. That was Matthew Rycroft, the uh, British ambassador to the United Nations, speaking to Rita Lashar on what the, U- the UK sees as China's responsibility in reining in its ally, North Korea. So what's the view from Beijing? Victor Gao is a former diplomat and Chinese government advisor. I think the situation involving the DDRK nuclear weapon program and launch via program has really reached the tipping point and no one can refuse to be alert against the possibility of the situation developing into either a war or continuing the peace on the Korean Peninsula. Eventually, it will require highly coordinated efforts by all the major countries involved, especially in this particular case between China and the United States. I will strongly urge uh, the United States government and uh, President Donald Trump himself of avoiding coming up with very mixed and confused messages, which actually confuse the United States itself, its allies, as well as major partners, including China. The United States need to come up with consistent coherent, logical messages at a time when we are faced with life or death, war or peace choices concerning TPRK's nuclear weapon program. What the United States is doing, blaming China, dumping all the responsibilities on China and creating more hostility in other parts of the situation here in South China Sea, for example, is not helpful. But at the same time, what China is is saying in terms of, for example, demanding that there be a freeze on U.S.-South Korean military exercises in return for a, a, a ratcheting down of the provocations from North Korea rewards North Korea for what is illegal and highly dangerous activity. I think we need to keep our eyes very much focused on the ultimate goal, that is, denuclearization by DPRK. I think if we can achieve that ultimate goal, all the means and measures could be taken up. And whatever measures which obstruct the ultimate goal of denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula should be removed and minimized. And that's why the joint military exercises by the United States and ROK are actually not helpful because the more exercise you do, the more worried and alarmed and hysteria the DPRK regime becomes and the more they want to develop their bombs. So you create and you get yourself caught up in this vicious circle. I think China is magnanimous in its view that the two freezes need to be happening at the same time, freeze of the nuclear weapon testing by DPRK and the freeze of the joint military exercises by ROK and the United States. What do you say to those who would contend that what North Korea is doing by having these tests and these launches of missiles at the time when President Xi Jinping has some very high-profile meetings in Beijing, it's, it's happened before this year, it happened again over the weekend, that actually Pyongyang is embarrassing Beijing, and it's showing the limits of how much China has 
in terms of sway in the region? I would say from the Chinese perspective, we care about much more important things than embarrassment or lack of it. Because right now, the matter on the Korean Peninsula has a direct bearing on war or peace, life or death for tens of thousands, if not millions of people. So let's drop embarrassment or lack of it. Let's really very much focus on achieving the ultimate goal of denuclearization, which matters the most importantly for all of us. That was Victor Gao, director of the Chinese National Association of International Studies, talking to me from Beijing. Later in the programme, we'll hear from the Japanese ambassador to the United Nations. A North Korean missile was fired over his country a week ago. So, does he feel that the end of the diplomatic road is in sight? We'll hear from him in 30 minutes here on NewsHour. Also coming up on the programme, as Rohingya Muslims flee from Myanmar to Bangladesh, we'll hear from our correspondent on the border. Entire families, men, women, children. There's even an old woman being carried in a makeshift stretcher. It's exhausting, but at least it means that they're alive. That report from the Myanmar-Bangladesh border in about 20 minutes. Our headlines this hour, as we've been hearing, the United States has accused North Korea of begging for war after its latest nuclear test, but China says that there must be a return to negotiations. And Colombia's second-largest rebel group, the ELN, has agreed its first-ever bilateral ceasefire with the government. More on that story in 15 minutes. This is the BBC World Service and live from London, you're listening to NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. The fight against the Boko Haram militants who've rampaged across northern Nigeria in recent years is not just waged by the government and its troops. 25,000 vigilantes, often armed with little more than sticks or homemade rifles, are playing a key role in Nigeria's war against the jihadists. More than 600 members of the vigilante groups have been killed. Now, there are warnings that unless the men are given jobs, they could present a new security threat. With more from the northeastern Nigerian city of Marduguri, the BBC's Martin Patience reports. We're at a checkpoint on the outskirts of the city. It's made from sandbags, and there's a tin roof to protect them from the elements. There's four vigilantes in here. What's extraordinary is they've all got wooden guns. These are homemade rifles. front of them are the fields and a road, a red road. And along this red road came several suicide bombers. The vigilantes in this checkpoint didn't know they were coming. It was late at night and five of them were killed at this very spot. It just gives you some idea of how dangerous it is for the vigilante groups operating to protect their communities. One of the vigilantes is Mustafa Musa. We never know when or how they'll come, whether they have guns or bombs. I'm not afraid. We can call on support. There are soldiers nearby. But the problem is that The enemy is well armed. 
and my gun only fires one round. The vigilantes can be a rowdy bunch. They're petty traders, civil servants and teachers, all of them volunteers. They man checkpoints to stop suicide bombers and sometimes accompany the military into the bush to attack Boko Haram bases. Hundreds have been killed. They began as a force four years ago when Boko Haram threatened to overrun Maiduguri. In the city, they're viewed as heroes. This man says they gave their lives for both Muslims and Christians here. Whenever anything happens, he says, they're the first to respond. This woman says they show no signs of tribalism, that they always do the best they can and they need more support. I'm inside an abandoned office which has been commandeered by the vigilante groups. And on a whitewashed wall written in chalk is something that sums up their mantra. It says, forgiving a terrorist is left to God, but fixing their appointment with God is our responsibility. These groups don't mess around. They mean business. They've been accused of extortion as well as rape, and of carrying out extrajudicial killings. And now there is a growing fear that the vigilantes could turn into a militia that the authorities cannot control. Their commander, Lawan Jaffer, warns the situation is unsustainable. I'm appealing to the government to provide jobs to the vigilantes and to take care of the poor families of those who lost their lives to the cause. What will happen if these men don't get jobs? We're going to have problems with armed robbery and kidnapping because if a man has no job, he will do anything to survive. No one doubts the bravery of these men. They've helped put Boko Haram on the back foot. But unless their sacrifices are recognised, they could end up presenting a new threat. Mark, uh, Martin Patience with the vigilantes in northeastern Nigeria. Scientists in Scotland have developed a camera that can see through the human body and that, they say, could make a huge difference to routine but awkward medical procedures which involve putting scopes and other devices inside our bodies. Mike Tanner is a physicist at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh and a lead researcher on the project. This is based on seeing light passing through the body. So we've developed a method and a camera to see light which comes from the medical device that has been inserted. And the way this works is that uh, we probably all know that if we put a torch behind our hand, you see some red light coming out the other side. In fact, uh, near-infrared light just out of the visible spectrum comes through even more easily, but only a small amount of light comes out. So we have to use a very sensitive camera to observe that light passing through. 
The next problem is that when you put a torch behind your hand, you see a vague glow over a large region of your hand, but you don't, most of the useful information has been lost because the light, as it passes through tissue, bounces off lots of things, it scatters, losing all the useful information. Whereas with our camera, we can look at the very first light that comes through the tissue. And that first light is the light that has traveled most directly and bounced least. And that's the light that can tell you where the device was inside the body. Right. So it's about directing the device to the to the right place as opposed to necessarily the the sort of the clarity of the image when you get to the right place. So this is about determining the location of devices that are put inside the human body. So in our particular project, we've been particularly interested in diagnosing lung disease. And this is a uh, uh, interdisciplinary research collaboration funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council called Proteus. And in this case, uh, clinicians put bronchoscopes into the lung, but then they push optic fibre devices out the end of the bronchoscope. And those optic fibre devices, they don't always know where they have ended up. So we can use this kind of new uh, technology to tell the clinician where that fibre has ended up. But it's not just limited to that. A very, very standard clinical procedures are to put catheters inside the body. And in this case, the catheter sometimes goes up the right veins or arteries, and sometimes it goes in an un- unintended direction. And to determine if a catheter has been correctly placed, normally they have to resort to x-ray, which involves bringing in a mobile x-ray unit or moving the patient and causes significant delays to procedures. With our kind of camera technology, we can image the location of those inserted devices in real time and let the clinician really see what they're doing with these uh, keyhole procedures. Right. I mean, it sounds as if it could be a lot cheaper, uh, a lot easier and have many, many applications. Am I, am I doing a decent PR job? You're you're doing an excellent PR job for me. Thank you very much. Um, Yes, uh, the the equipment itself is, I'm going to say, relatively simple. I shouldn't downplay it. The detector technology inside our camera is a very advanced technology that has come out of quantum physics laboratories, uh, and but it's well established in the physics lab. What we're really doing here through this interdisciplinary work is bringing that out and applying it to a real-world problem uh, facing clinicians every day. That was Mike Tanner, physicist at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. You can see more about this if you head to our website, bbc.com forward slash news, and look at the tech pages. It's on there. It's also, actually, you can find it if you go through the uh, Scotland pages and then uh, click on the Edinburgh Fife and East section, and that's because uh, Mike Tanner was speaking from the University in Edinburgh. It's brilliant the way it works in those ways. It doesn't work if you go through the cricket pages. Next on NewsHour, following the conversion of the FARC into a political party, is the second biggest rebel group in Colombia now ready for peace. First, it was the twist that few expected when, on Friday, in what's believed to be a first in Africa, Kenya's Supreme Court annulled the recent re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta and ordered a rerun of the vote. Both the government and the opposition coalition, led by Raila Odinga, have agreed to abide by that ruling. But what do voters think? The BBC's David Whitty has been speaking to some young musicians in Kibera slum in the capital Nairobi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, I personally am the reminder Black Seed, reggae dance artist from Kibera. And uh, right now we are at the Soweto side of Kibera with my youth right here, uh, the big ship team. Yo, pass my letter to my president. 
pass my letter to my government. First of all, I want to let you know that Kibera is a cosmopolitan place. We have different tribes, and so it's something just genuine. Okay, I think uh, most of the votes are for Raila here, but uh, it's not like a, tri a tribal thing or something. So I think, like uh, my friend here, I think he has a different opinion. As as the Jubilee people, I believe that we won the election. Yeah, I feel we are cheated. But when it comes to the re-election, we are still ready to fight. Uh, hopefully not fight physically. Uh, not, no hard feelings. We may have, we may have emotions, but we st we'll still have to vote. Yeah. The fact that we are all ghetto youths, we have so much in common than our differences. Okay, I mean that uh, we are all victims of the system. So we have so many things that bring us together than the political differences. So when it comes to politics, we don't take it too personal and we are not extremists in it. Okay, as for my opinion, the system doesn't favor us in any way because the rich are only getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But if the politicians are not helping any of you, why bother getting interested in politics? Why be passionate about <laughs> politics if you feel they are not there for you? Ignoring politics completely is ignorance in itself. Artists pay tax, ghetto youths pay tax, we pay tax in whichever way, we pay tax in all corners. So I have to be concerned how this tax is being used. If we are not concerned about what they are doing, if they are using the money genuinely, then we are going into a deeper ditch, you see, than ever before. So we have to raise concern. It's just trying to, it's just another hope. When, when an ele election time comes due to previous poor governance, it's another hope for the youth. They are indeed the Kibera youth from uh, the slum in Nairobi, um, as uh, told to the BBC's David Whitty. This is News Hour, live from the BBC with me, Tim Franks. We began the programme talking about an unresolved conflict decades old, crackling with renewed tension. That's in the Korean Peninsula. The other side of the world in South America comes news of another long-running conflict which may, in contrast, be drawing to a close. In Colombia, members of the country's second-largest rebel group, the ELN, say that they have agreed a temporary ceasefire with the government. The announcement comes two days before Pope Francis visits the country. President Juan Manuel Santos said that while the truce lasted, the ELN would stop activities which harmed civilians. The priority is to protect our citizens, so during this period, kidnappings, attacks on oil pipelines and other hostilities against the civilian population will cease. The Pope is arriving at a unique moment in our history, when we turn the page from an absurd conflict and face the future with hope. The BBC's Natalio Cossoy is in the Colombian capital, Bogotá. First, who are the ELN? The ELN is a, a left-wing Marxist guerrilla inspired by the Cuban revolution that was created 
in the mid-1960s in Colombia. Uh, at the same time, the FARC, the other big guerrilla group in Colombia, was created. The FARC had already uh, given up, up the, our weapons and are joining civilian society, becoming a political party after a long peace negotiation with the government. The ELN has just, if you wish, started the negotiations at the beginning of this year in February. And what's happened today, it's a, a major breakthrough because there hasn't, not much had happened since, since February. So the fact that they've managed to reach this truce, even though it's got a limit in time up until the beginning of next year, it means that something is moving forward finally. And presumably it's no coincidence that it happens a couple of days before Pope Francis is due to arrive in country. Not at all. They were both, the government and the ELN, pushing strongly to reach some sort of compromise so they could actually announce this around the Pope's visit. And there's, there's a, an extra reason that people would probably not know. And the fact is that the ELN is very close to the Catholic Church. One of its early members was, was a, a priest who was killed very shortly after joining the the ELN and one of its leader was a Spanish priest who joined the EL, the ELN and that was in the past so they've got this particular link to with the Catholic Church and I think they were also looking forward to being able to show uh, some willingness for peace while the Pope is visiting. How far does the deal that the government struck with the FARC pro- provide a template for what might be uh, successful negotiations with the ELN? Well, I know the government would have liked to use this as a template. Uh, unfortunately for them, the ELN uh, believe that they are different and they have to be treated different. So they are setting a different agenda and they are negotiating a different agenda with the government. And that, of course, will mean that everything will move slower because if they just used the same sort of uh, basic points and agenda as they did with the FARC, it would move much faster. But now they have to sort of redesign or designing, especially for the ELN, and that will mean that it's going to move uh, much slower. And do you think it will be similarly controversial inside Colombia? Yes, I think no doubt it will be controversial. It will, it will all depend on how much each of the sides give to the other, especially how much the government give to the ELN, how much the ELN manage, manages to get out of this deal. The, the FARC, for instance, managed to agree on a special justice system that would allow them to avoid jail sentences as, as such. So if the ELN ends up getting the same sort of treatment, uh, of course, there will be criticism in Colombia. That was Natalia Kosoy uh, talking to me from Bogota. The United Nations says that 87,000 Rohingya Muslims have now fled to Bangladesh from Myanmar since the army began a campaign against militants in uh, less than two weeks ago. The refugees say soldiers set fire to their homes and shot at them, a claim denied by Myanmar's government. Our correspondent Sanjoy Majumdar is on the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Parts of his report, I should warn you, are graphic. I'm just wading through a small stream very close to the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh. There are paddy fields on either side and just ahead, hills, beyond which is Myanmar's Rakhine state. I've just met a small group of Rohingyas, three villagers. One of them's carrying a chicken, another one's carrying household items. Just ask them how many people are on the other side. And they're just saying there are many, many people, thousands. 
still waiting to cross. My name is Shakin Oruddin. We've been walking for four days. We had brought some rice by God over on the first night. We haven't eaten since. We have nothing left. Our houses have all been burned down. People are just being cut to pieces. My neighbor was beaten and then burnt alive. This is one of the main crossings through which the Rohingya refugees are coming into Bangladesh now. And a huge group has just walked in. I'm by the side of a steep hill. On the other side is Myanmar. And entire families, men, women, children. There's even an old woman being carried in a makeshift stretcher. They're all making their way through the hill, through the forests, and then wading through the streams. It's exhausting, but at least it means that they're alive. It's taken us seven days of walking through the mountains to get here. My brother was killed. They shot him in the chest. I couldn't even dig him a proper grave. I somehow managed to bury him just outside our house, and then I left. It's hard to verify these accounts. No one is being allowed inside Myanmar's Rakhine state. But plumes of smoke can be seen from the Bangladesh side, presumably from the burning villages. The Myanmar authorities allege the violence is being orchestrated by Rohingya militants, who had carried out a series of coordinated attacks on police posts over a week ago. But the refugees say they're the ones being attacked, and so they're streaming into Bangladesh, leading to a massive humanitarian crisis. Melissa Fleming is the chief spokesman for the United Nations Refugee Agency. We are hugely concerned about the humanitarian situation when we are seeing you know, growing numbers just in the past two weeks, almost 60,000 people crossing into Bangladesh, up to 20,000 people amassed on the Bangladesh border in a terrible state. Very many women, children, elderly, with nothing but the clothes on their back, nothing to eat. The main refugee camps in Bangladesh are now overflowing. Fresh Rohingya arrivals are sheltering in schools, mosques and by the side of the road. They've managed to cross their first hurdle, making it here alive. Now they have to try and survive. Sanjoy Majumda reporting from the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Let's head to Ethiopia. And that's because police there have stopped the country's biggest music star from launching his new album. Teddy Afro, as the singer calls himself, is about to hold a party to mark the release of the album. It's called Ethiopia. When officers showed up and said that the event wasn't allowed to go ahead... Our correspondent Emmanuel Agunza is in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. 
the event had been much hyped in Ethiopia. There were around a thousand guests who had been invited to one of the hotels here in the capital, Addis Ababa. But then as Teddy Afro's uh, sound men were trying to put the equipment in place for the launch, police came to the hotel venue and stopped them from setting up the equipment. Uh, so at the moment, it's not very clear. Teddy Afro has been talking on his Facebook page. He released a statement where he said that the authorities had asked him to have a permit for that event. And he says this request is really absurd because uh, having paid the, the fees that were required at the hotel, he expected to uh, go on with his album launch. Teddy Afro had also planned to do another concert on the Ethiopian New Year's Eve, which is on September 10th. He was also denied permit to hold that event. So quite many questions being asked right now for the police and all the authorities on why this series of events that had been organized by Teddy Afro have been cancelled without any explanation. Well, what about the album then? It was released back in May, I guess, you know, in advance of this this launch party. I mean, it's been selling incredibly well, hasn't it? Does it have a, any overt politics in it? Not at all. I mean, I've listened to all the 15 tracks uh, in this album and these lyrics are speaking about uh, Ethiopian unity, historic lessons. He's been referring to some of the rulers of Ethiopia and also talking about unity of the country at a time when Ethiopia is facing unprecedented uh, levels of anti-government protests. So it's not really clear why the lyrics of this album could have made the government stop him from holding this series of concerts. But he is still a really huge huge figure here in Ethiopia. This is his fifth album and it has just elevated him to legendary status here in Ethiopia. Are people discussing this whole episode and what they make of it? People have been asking why these events have been cancelled. They were looking forward to this launch. And it all goes back to 2005 during uh, disputed elections. Then several hundreds of people were killed uh, during post-election violence. And Teddy Afro immediately after released an album and one of its signature tunes was a song that was seen as being very critical against the government. Since then, he's been adopted by the opposition as somehow a poster boy for their protests against the government. He's no stranger to controversy. In 2008, uh, immediately after those elections, he was arrested in a case of uh, hit and run that he says was politically motivated. So right now, he's really trying to figure out exactly why the government is cancelling this event, coming at the back of a huge success of an album that has taken him uh, several years to make. Is the album any good, do you think? I think it's a wonderful album. I've listened to it and from the first uh, track to the very last one, it's just amazing. BBC's Emmanuel Agunza speaking to me from Addis Ababa and doing what no BBC correspondent should do, and that is venturing an opinion on anything. He approves of Teddy Afro's work. Um, You make up your mind.
top story this hour is that the United States has accused North Korea of begging for war after its latest nuclear test. China, though, says there must be a return to negotiations. And Victor Gao, a former Chinese government adviser, told NewsHour that military exercises held by South Korea and the US only serve to contribute to the tensions. The joint military exercises by the United States and ROK are actually not helpful because the more exercise you do, the more worried and alarmed and hysteria the DPRK regime becomes and the more they want to develop their bombs. One other headline story we've looked at this hour. Colombia's second largest rebel group, the ELN, has, agrees, has agreed its first ever bilateral ceasefire with the government. Let's return to our main story. The United States calling for the strongest possible measures against North Korea at the United Nations Security Council after Pyongyang's latest nuclear test. Within the last hour, it's emerged that President Trump and South Korea's leader Moon Jae-in have agreed in a phone call to maximise pressure on the North using, I quote, all means at their disposal. Earlier, the Russian ambassador to the UN, Vasily Nobenzia, said that past solely sanctions-based efforts to deal with the threat posed by North Korea had not worked and that dialogue was the only way forward. This excursion into history only serves as evidence of the fact that we failed to resolve this issue through Security Council resolutions which were only geared towards leveraging sanctions mechanisms. We call upon all stakeholders to immediately return to dialogue and negotiations as that is the only way to comprehensively settle the issues besetting the Korean Peninsula, including nuclear issues. Well, one country which is surveying the threat from North Korea particularly closely is Japan. Only a week ago, North Korea fired a missile over the Japanese island of Hokkaido. So today's meeting of the United Nations Security Council was being keenly watched in that country. Koro Besho was at the meeting. He's Japan's permanent representative to the United Nations. What did he make of the US ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, saying that Kim Jong-un was begging for war? Well, I was there, obviously, and I spoke my part. I spoke uh, representing my own country. I think it was very clear from um, everyone's statements, I mean, 15 of them, that everyone was uh, very strongly concerned and um, there was very strong condemnation coming from everyone. And I felt that uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley's statement was a very strong one. And uh, as you know, she uh, said that she would like to move towards a further sanctions uh, resolution and she would like to do it quickly and I supported all that. Yeah, there are differences of emphasis though, aren't there? I mean, everybody, yes, of course, around the Security Council table, I hardly need tell you, you were there, um, condemned North Korea's actions. But in terms of where they think this now goes, I mean, the language from the US is certainly the strongest that we've heard. Before we get on to what sort of sanctions, do you agree with that view of Pyongyang, that it is, in quotes, begging for war? Well, I don't really know what the intentions of North Korea is. I mean, I don't think anybody really know what North Korea is trying to do. It's very clear, but their actions are very clear. 
less than a week ago, they flew a missile, ballistic missile, right over Japan's land. And uh, then they announced that they have been able to miniaturize nuclear warheads so that it can be fitted into an ICBM. And then, hours later, they had this uh, nuclear test. So their actions speak for themselves. I mean, it's... uh, and yet, at the same time, Ambassador, sorry to interrupt, you say mm. we, we don't really know what Pyongyang wants. And I just wonder if that's rather revealing, because, you know, you will hear China say uh, what Pyongyang wants is for there to be talks and for it to be treated with respect. Um, what uh, the US views uh, Pyongyang do, is doing is is little short of, of blackmail and illegality. What, what So... What's your view on that? Where do you sit? Well, I think what we really need to keep in mind is that North Korea has been doing this for quite some time, and we have the Security Council, the international body that is responsible for peace and security, has been telling them to stop. Now, we obviously treat them as um, graciously as possible, but there is a limit to what we can put up with. So we are telling them you have to stop now, Otherwise, there will be consequences for them. And those consequences you would like to see as as what? I mean, much tougher sanctions? Well, yes, at this moment, that's what we're looking for. And in particular, what would that mean? I mean, do you envisage, for example, China curtailing energy supplies to uh, Pyongyang? If it's going to be uh, economic sanctions or trade restriction, it will be a global one. Um, But having said that, obviously, China accounts for 90% of uh, North Korean trade. So they will have a very important role to play. So just how far would you like those economic sanctions to be tightened? Well, I think there are areas we haven't covered that can be covered. Um, There are areas we have touched on but can be strengthened. So um, I I think there are a lot of ideas. We have exchanged some ideas with the United States and South Korea. Um, We are open to ideas, but we would like to have a resolution as quickly as possible. How far do you think we're getting to the point where diplomacy will have run its course? I mean, Nikki Haley, the US ambassador in the UN, was suggesting that the the can cannot be kicked down the road any further, to use her imagery. Obviously, we've had the, tr- the tweets from Donald Trump saying uh, the time for talking is over. How close are we to the point where diplomacy, we can say, has been exhausted? Well, um, being a, a professional diplomat myself, I think that uh, diplomat, diplomatic effort is always necessary. But um, I think what we should keep in mind is that since the North Koreans have been able to develop an ICBM, that since they've been able to conduct nuclear tests successfully, uh, according to them, um, there is little time left. Do you think in that case that some of the more bellicose noises that have come out of Washington are unhelpful? Well, I'm not saying whether it's helpful or not, but what the point that I, I feel is very important in what the United States, especially the president, is saying that he is willing and ready to defend its allies, U.S. allies. But it would be a disaster if there were war in the region. Of course, of course. So the problem is North Korea. um, And uh, we hope that they will not cross that line and actually make uh, military attacks. If it becomes impossible to envisage in the medium term North Korea being denuclearized, 
Do you think that the debate will grow within your country, within Japan, for Japan to have, however reluctantly, its own nuclear deterrent? Well, I think it's very clear that what the Japanese government is seeking at this moment and what the Japanese people are strongly behind is to denuclearize North Korea and not to nuclearize ourselves. The view of Coral Besho, Japan's permanent representative to the United Nations, and uh, just to flesh out the reports that are emanating from uh, Washington, according to the Reuters news agency, uh, President Trump has given, in principle, approval uh, on lifting restrictions on South Korea's missile payload capabilities, Reuters says. uh, The White House has uh, announced and that uh, Donald Trump has agreed Uh, that uh, conceptual approval be given to South Korea to buy billions of dollars of weapons from the US. That's it from NewsHour. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team, thanks for listening. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.